Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I don't normally do this sort of thing since there are so many terrible things that go on in the world and I suspect I might just be about to be pompous. But at the time of writing, David Amos MP was murdered while meeting his constituents in the finest tradition of parliamentary representation, the availability to all which undermines our democracy. I could not be more shocked. The murder was an assault on our way of life and government as well as the horrible death of a fine person. Not only that... But this is not the first time in June 2016 Joe Cox, MP, was brutally murdered. And as the new statesman recently logged, there have been others. I wanted to simply record my disgust at the murder of Joe and David and send all my thoughts and prayers to their families. Although we frequently give our MPs a hard time, I would like to record my respect for the vast majority of them who work hard to represent their constituents, even my MP, with whom I almost always disagree, but have no doubt of his essential decency. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 329, Oaths and Libels. Let me take you back to 1606 and to Parliament. As you know, the representatives of the people had been sent home in the aftermath of the gunpowder treason and plot. Well, when they were reassembled, they were treated to the sight of a rat disappearing up a drain of state so fast that the speed of light lay in ruins around them shattered. The rat was called Robert Cecil, 1st Earl of Salisbury, 5th Creation. You know how when Covid appeared, nations around the world rallied around their leaders and sang for she's such a jolly good fellow. Well, for a while anyway, until they realised what a mess they were making of it. Anyway, Salisbury was a sharp knife, a bright spark, and he knew full well that there'd be a wave of sympathy for a king whose bottom had almost been blown to the stars. Well, along with a fair number of parliamentary bottoms, to be fair as well. So, Salisbury slipped in a request for a grant of taxation, and darn me, if after all that cussedness in 1604, they didn't just grant the king a whopper, enough to raise 400,000 quid, which was more than they'd granted good old Queen Bess most times, except just once, and fairies that had been in the middle of a war. Before the royal fist had stopped pumping the air, Bob Sess had slipped another fatty through the sausage grinder. Given that it had been Catholics who had objected so strongly to all those bottoms, Parliament passed a measure allowing James to seize two-thirds of the total estates of recusants if he wanted to do so. Two-thirds, ladies and gentlemen, rather than going through all that schlep of levying the £20 a month fine for non-attendance. The idea being 
that if the Catholic gentry were a bit more impoverished, they'd not be able to support all those priests running around the countryside. Actually, James and indeed the Privy Council remained rather moderate about the whole thing. Fines were rarely pursued to the extent that they could have been, people were frequently let off, and the two-thirds thing was never really applied, even when priests were caught and were incorrigible, refusing to leave the country according to the law of the land, James's instruction was, no torrent of blood, penalties to the few. Except he probably said it in Scots and Latin. However, rather more significantly, Parliament passed legislation which produced a new Oath of Allegiance. Now, there's a bit of a story about this Oath of Allegiance. So here, first of all, is part of the oath, suitably truncated on Nelly's advice. I, David Crowther, do truly and sincerely acknowledge that our sovereign Lord King James is lawful and rightful king of this realm, and that the Pope, neither of himself, hath any power or authority to depose the king, or to dispose any of his majesty's kingdoms, or to authorise any foreign prince to invade or annoy him or his countries, or to discharge any of his subjects of their allegiance and obedience to his majesty. And I do further swear that I do from my heart abhor, detest and abjure as impious and heretical this damnable doctrine and position that princes which be excommunicated by the Pope may be deposed or martyred by their subjects or by any other whatsoever. Now, in the pitching and glossing process of this oath, James said to anyone who would listen that he was a nice bloke, kind to small children, a lover of fluffy animals, especially if they were fluffy hunting hounds with sharp teeth that could kill a deer in a jiffy. And the purpose of this oath was that it was impossible for Catholics to take the pre-existing oath of supremacy in good conscience. So here, the oath of allegiance, this was an act of accommodation of toleration, of not making windows, that sort of thing. As far as James was concerned, this oath wasn't after a Catholic's conscience. No, 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 no. The only important thing to him was to render unto Caesar that which was Caesar's, which in this case meant undivided loyalty. Now, it has to be said that some very influential Catholics bought this line with some enthusiasm. So, the Archpriest of England, George Blackwell, reassured Catholics that they could take the oath. But hold on just a minute there, Bold Eagle. Let me put a hitch in your giddy, as I believe they say, over the pond. Maybe it wasn't quite that easy. Maybe actually James was looking to divide and rule. Maybe what he wanted was to split the Catholic vote in two, to create a division, the wills and the won'ts. And right on cue, the Pope, as ever, went for a cross-batted swipe, tried to cart the ball all over the ground and got no more than a nick and was caught behind. He objected very much to the oath of allegiance. What are you talking about, you blithering idiot? Of course Popes were able to depose mere secular rulers. We're God's representative earthling. Blackwell was reprimanded. Lancelot Andrews, one of the Arminian English bishops, testily wrote that if the Pope removed temporal rulers... That would have condemned him as being a character in John's revelations, namely the Antichrist. Which I think qualifies as testy, wouldn't you agree? Blackwell's reaction was indicative that if James was seeking to 
create division, then he'd done a pretty good job. To continue the cricket analogy, poor old Archpriest Blackwell didn't know whether to go forward or to go back to James's ball as bowled by the Oath of Allegiance. But after being reassured by James, he did take the oath and was duly replaced in his archpriestness by the Pope. For ordinary Catholics, they unsurprisingly faced something of a clampdown after the gunpowder plot, as you'd expect really, and there was a short-term but dramatic increase in convictions for recusancy, but then over £28,000 of recusancy fines remained uncollected, which is hardly a sign of a relentless programme to destroy the Catholic community. Now, there are other interpretations about the oath. Some think James was just showboating, doing the Henry VIII thing, saying, hey, look at me, I'm a theological expert. Others, that he was asserting his theological authority over the kingdom. I have the right to make these decisions. But the main matter of debate does seem to be between whether it was persecution, targeting those who owed allegiance to the Pope first and the King second, or conciliatory providing an oath based on loyalty to the king rather than theological dogma and doctrine. The oath would continue to be used right to the end of the century to trap the unwary and is anyway actually a version of the dreaded question that interrogators had used under Elizabeth. But it did have some impacts that James was less keen on, a law of unintended consequences basically. James essentially thought that he and his fellow rulers should rise above religion, that their role as Christian princes was more important than dogma or doctrine. And this attitude would show very strongly in his foreign policy. He wanted to promote European peace. And having his son marry a Catholic Spanish princess was therefore fair game. But the immoderate nature of the anti-papalism of the Oath of Allegiance was bound to be objectionable to Catholic rulers, and they rather agreed with the Pope when he pointed out that James promised much in terms of toleration and delivered nout. Relationships with some fellow countries, therefore, such as the Venetians, for example, definitely suffered from the oath. While we're on this religious thing again, sorry, can't seem to get away from it, but you know there is a message about the attitudes of the time in that. Well, I guess there might be a complaint that all these persecutions of the Catholics is a terrible tyranny of the state. Boo, horrid state. Aren't they awful? Not like good, clean, ordinary folks like us. It's all the politicians' fault. Well, James was actually very much at the reasonable end of the spectrum as it happens. All he wanted to do was to identify the other papists as in their heart maintained the like violent bloody maxims of the gunpowder plotters. Well, Parliament probably actually supported the Oath of Allegiance because they thought Catholics would not be able to sign up to it and therefore be soundly punished. As far as the silent and not-so-silent Protestant majority was concerned, to be Catholic was to be inherently treasonous. Do not for a moment suggest this is an English prejudice thing or indeed even a Protestant prejudice thing. As I may have mentioned before, this is a way of the Christian world thing. Anti-Catholic prejudice will however be a feature of English life and politics for some time, and indeed Scottish life and politics in spades. There will be multiple flare-ups from the good, solid, honest burghers of England, Wales and Scotland, major panics about the dangers of popery, riots, parliamentary barnies, 
the works. So look up the Gordon riots as late as 1780, for example. And historians have found it all rather difficult to deal with because it's rather alien to us now. It's been seen as irrational. These daft passions and prejudices on the supposition that surely not everyone could be so passionate about their religion and some have therefore blamed the fanaticism on just small groups of zealots, the Puritans, Protestants of the hotter sort, the Jesuits, extreme recusants, dragging everyone into madness by the process of shouting louder than everyone else. In the end, it's been wearily described as simply an anti-thing, just an irrational prejudice. But it's been pointed out also that by understanding why in the North Atlantic archipelago, the Scots and English in particular, were united by this visceral terror of the threat of papacy, actually we might understand a little about what they valued about their own religion too, because there is buried in those fears a positive set of values about how they thought of their own beliefs and what they valued about them. At base, that led to a fundamental difference. Protestants felt that the old church had allowed the mere human authorities, traditions and practices to take over the church. Protestantism rejected the authority of man in the form of the claims of the church and focused entirely on what they believed was the word of God in the Bible. The most obvious objection was the Pope's usurpation, in their view, of Christ's role as the head of the church. No longer, they argued, was Christ's sacrifice on the cross at the centre of belief. Instead, they saw the worship of idols in the use of saints as intercessors, a doctrine of transubstantiation which they described as bread worship, and the Mass itself was compared to a conjuring trick or magic. This focus on removing the works of man as opposed to the word of God therefore also struck at the idea of justification by good works. A trick, they claimed. Guilt could not be assuaged by some external religious observance or act of clerical absolution. Catholicism, or papism as it's constantly referred to at the time and I have tried to avoid generally as a term, was therefore an anti-religion to them. It was an inversion in the minds of most observing Protestants, just as Protestantism was nothing more than a perversion in the minds of Catholics. One of the signs of that anti-religion was the claim by the Pope to be able to set aside the laws of God and nature, such as, for example, for the requirement of celibacy for some roles, which set aside marriage which had been established as an honourable estate in the mind of Protestants. The Pope had trampled on the rights and liberties of bishops and Christian princes in engaging in a huge confidence trick to convince the world of this false religion which used the illusions of images and idols and magic to achieve its aims, all of which relied absolutely on maintaining the ignorance of the laity to succeed. They believed the Pope's strategy relied on removing the light of the Gospels from ordinary people, knowing that once that light shone into people's lives, the illusion would vanish. Phew! So I say positive, and I can feel Catholics all over the world bristling with fury at the stream of criticism and negativity. Sorry about that. Obviously, I'm simply recording the views of the time. And if you want a reasonably simple way of seeing a list of these objections, then I can do no better than recommending the Scottish National Covenant of 1638, which is essentially a list of Catholic iniquities. 
Of course, in their increasing move to Presbyterianism and closer alignment with the teaching of Calvin, the Scots went a step further, seeing any hierarchy among the clergy as an emanation of the Pope's tyrannical rule over the Church. So, just to justify all this negativity, I must go to what this says about what Protestants then valued about their own religion, the values that underpinned it, and why then this matters, so that it drives so much political engagement. First up, they believed that their religion was based on the simple, unvarnished truth as revealed by the scriptures, and therefore sought to free all Christians from illusion. Associated with this, they believed therefore that their faith was rational and coherent, based on the word rather than the accretions of centuries of tradition. Theirs was a word-based vision of rationality, enlightenment and knowledge. This enlightenment was by definition a popular enlightenment, which involved everyone. And this had implications also for the rights of princes. According to John Bridges, for example, princes could hardly denounce papal power as tyrannical without some form of consent from the ruled to their own rule. In that balance and consent depended the strength of the system, the liberties that delivered the vital defence of property. Conformists and Arminians in particular, when challenged by Puritans about the strength of hierarchical secular authority implicit in bishops and supreme governors and that sort of thing, pointed to the success of Elizabeth and James in removing Catholicism, restoring the gospel, keeping England from all the confessional strife which racked so many countries on the continent to such ruin, death and destruction. It seemed to them that this was God's providential care for the English. Protestantism was also essentially a movement which was national, free of foreign power. Protestants saw themselves very much as part of an international movement. The links with Protestants all over Europe was very strong. And the idea that the break from Rome was in any way cutting England off is a modern invention of the anti-Brexiteer looking for historical gotcha. But Protestantism required no allegiance to a foreign ruler, unlike Catholicism in the form of the Pope. Catholicism, therefore, becomes othered as this foreign thing. As I said earlier, it means Catholicism was often seen as inherently treasonous. And, of course, the experiences of Mary and Elizabeth's reigns had associated Catholicism with a threat to English freedom. And thus Catholicism became seen as a tyranny as opposed to English liberty. So, why does this all matter, politically speaking? Well, it makes foreign policy a matter of intense debate and importance, as we'll find out. Furthermore, the philosophy emphasised the balance between a king and his subjects. In that relationship lay strength, peace and stability. So, as conflict appeared in politics under James and Charles... This was a grievous disappointment. The system was failing to deliver the required harmony and this gave Stuart England a basic problem. When conflict began to be a feature of politics, it interrupted the rules everyone held, the need for agreement between king and people. And to this, the perceived threat of Catholicism and the papacy operated as an explanation so this conflict was being caused by conspiracies from this foreign faith called popery. 
Furthermore, of course, this wasn't just about politics. It was about the very soul. The Pope was seeking to trick the English with false anti-religion to subvert their souls to eternal damnation. Don't for a moment think that the English in their Protestantism therefore believed in the idea of England as an elect nation, as has sometimes been said. That whole idea was theological nonsense as far as Protestantism was concerned. It was certain that in the end the Antichrist would lose and Christ would win, but it was an open question about whether England would triumph with Christ or be destroyed with the Antichrist. So all of this is very active, isn't it? It's very immediate, very real, very, very important. There is a threat politically and to the very stuff of eternity. This allowed all the disparate beliefs and objections to come together into one unifying force. It's all about the popery, stupid. In here lies the hysteria, the extreme nature of the rhetoric about Catholicism. It was inherently a foreign threat to the liberties, property and effective working of the English state, seeking to divide and to corrupt, explaining all sorts of inexplicable social and political dispute and deviances. It was a threat to their very souls, and whether England survived with Christ or perished with the Antichrist depended on how the English responded to God's commands. And interpreting God's commands, of course, was a matter of some debate and concerned the very fabric of society and daily life as much as it did politics or foreign affairs. Now, I'm not saying all this sounds fun, but it was and would remain very powerful indeed. And meanwhile, it's worth mentioning that Puritanism began to acquire in the minds of some a similarly divisive reputation. So, amongst the Arminians and conformists in particular, the Calvinist division between godly and ungodly was deeply divisive to society. Their insistence on the primacy of preaching seemed to undermine the structured and solemn role of the church and potentially feed an inbuilt sense of anti-clericalism amongst the laity. And so when we get to Archbishop Lord and his impacts on England, this belief that Puritanism was intrinsically dangerous to respect for authority will play a big part. And James would probably have agreed with them. Certainly, he fought very hard in Scotland to the end of his reign to maintain his bishops in the face of Presbyterianism. So, I hope I am bringing home the point of just how fundamental was the fear, prejudice and antagonism towards papal power amongst Protestants in England and Scotland in this case, but across the water too. It wasn't simply a them and us situation brought on by dynastic politics. It was a fundamental difference of faith the soul, society, liberty and the defence of property. For James also, the increasing ubiquity of a rabid anti-papal public opinion was anathema. It represented for him a real limitation on the Crown's autonomy. And we will see a very good example of this, of how that works, when James tries to organise a Spanish marriage for his son. It led to a national panic attack of truly industrial proportions, and no monarch back then could happily have accepted such a restriction on their traditional prerogative to make and unmake foreign affairs exactly as they saw fit. This was their hood. And this was not, in James's view, a matter for 
people or the parliament at all. As such, the Arminian and Laudian rhetoric which equated Calvinism with populism would become deeply convincing to James's son, which would have, you know, consequences. One more thing before we move away, just to flag a topic we'll surely come back to. Another consequence was the beginning of a separation between court and country, a concept beloved of historians which also fed the fire of a full and frank exchange of historiographical views over the years. The basic idea is to reduce it to bare essentials. That the goings-on at court seemed increasingly out of kilter with the priorities and values of the country. Country, in this sense, being the early modern one, meaning your locality, your region, your hood. Must stop using that word. Antipopery played into the separation between court and country. James demanded that his will was law, his prerogatives were paramount, and he would have no limit set by populist demands and local notions. He appeared to show a distressing liberality at the same time and restraint towards Catholics. He employed crypto-Catholics in key roles on the Privy Council who had real influence. A writer called Thomas Scott complained that the court, with all its wealth, could not help but attract the ambitious and the self-seeking rather than the safely religious conformist. But also, it attracted foreign Catholics, such as foreign ambassadors, who walked its corridors of power and influence. Increasingly, Parliament began to be seen as a bulwark and restraining force on this potential source of national corruption from the court, poisoning the body politic. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Phew! Well, that's enough of that then. One of the crypto-Catholics on whom suspicion fell was the Earl of Northampton, Henry Howard. Northampton was one of a triumvirate that dominated the Privy Council and government. Himself, his Howard relative Thomas Howard, the Earl of Suffolk, and the leader of them all, Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, Bob Cess, as he was almost never known. James referred to them all laughingly as his trinity of knaves. Northampton was a bit of a comeback kid through his calculated risk to communicate with James while still in Scotland before Elizabeth's death, and he'd had his due rewards. He'd been made an earl by James. He was also an active parliamentarian, sitting on 57 committees during his time, despite a very poorly concealed disdain for the House of Commons. He remained duly grateful to James, which manifested itself in a certain oiliness towards his king, which creeping behaviour earned in the nickname His Majesty's Earwig, which I don't know, may not be entirely laudatory. What do you think? James was very fond of delivering a royal twitting to his faithful servant, but said twitting did not always fall into the 
just a bit of fun category, they had a serious falling out when James accused Northampton of innate hatred to me and all Scotland for my cause and cruel and malicious speeches against baby Charles and his honest father. Which may be why Northampton was in the end disappointed with his career because he never got the big posts which all went to Salisbury. Though, as we'll hear, he did make a bob or two in the process of his career. James did quite a bit of teasing, as it happens. Another of the naval trinity was a naval hero, arf arf, Thomas Howard, who also received his just desserts made Earl of Suffolk by James, but was much more trusted by the king, really, than Northampton was. James also twitted him, though. He twitted him about being a bit of a porker. Honest Big John. How we laughed. And he ragged him about his wife, Catherine Howard, born Nivet, which was just a little closer to the bone, to be honest, and maybe a little too close. Now look, I am gossiping here, frankly, but obviously I would claim, like the screws of the world on the search for a bit of extra circulation, to be acting in the public interest. Catherine Howard was born in about 1564. She married Richard Rich and then remarried Thomas Howard when Rich died. She was a player, was Catherine. Very beautiful, lively, entertaining, vivacious, charismatic. She used the influence of her husband and of her (coughs) friend, Salisbury, to gain an excellent position in Queen Anne's household and was obviously a bit of a hit there with major jobs at Anne's court and dancing in Anne's famous masks. But she was also avaricious, unscrupulous and ultimately corrupt. She appears to have had a series of affairs, which was what James ragged Suffolk about, which I would say is unkind, you know? Not really funny when it comes down to it, but whatever. She used the power that her relationships gave her which I have to say is entirely standard in court life. I mean, there was none of this modern stuff about equality and equity. You created networks to wield power, influence and make yourself a bundle. That was the way of the world, not just West One. But she went further than that, demanding kickbacks. So let me give you a couple of examples. All this came out in a later trial, by the way. In one instance, an unnamed citizen was due to pay a bond of 500 quid, So Catherine said she'd use her influence to get it cancelled in return for 83 quid and a sable muff. I have to say, that sounds a little like the 2p in a pencil that an unnamed primary schoolboy of my previous existence offered for a kiss to one of the girls at school, which was of course refused and is all wrong, of course. Sorry to have mentioned it. But 83 quid and a sable muff is amusingly specific, isn't it? Anyway, sorry. In another example, she was given 1,900 quid, which is macho spondulicase, when she procured the security for a debt of £20,000, which was owed by one Mr Turner. Tragically for Catherine, an attack of smallpox in 1619 destroyed the beauty which she had also used to advantage. Clearly, sympathy for her was not universal. Lady Anne Clifford ate a lemon and then remarked that the attack spoiled that good face of hers which had brought to others much misery and had to herself greatness which ended with much unhappiness. Anyway, Catherine's story is not finished but we'll come back to it. She had 12 children which must have interrupted all that corruptions and goings on and one of those children 
was Francis Howard, who was to cause mother and father much embarrassment and more nudge, and if you will, nudge, to which we might add a wink or two. Anyway, by far the greatest of the three knaves was Salisbury, and by a country mile at that. While Suffolk and Northampton were close in the king's ear, James knew a good administrator when he saw one, and Salisbury was the real deal, a chip off the old block without any doubt whatsoever. Although his reputation in history, actually, is a little more disputed, as we'll see. Salisbury reaped many rewards for his work, made Viscount Cranbourne, then Earl of Salisbury. He acquired an extraordinary collection of the most powerful offices, Lord Treasurer, Secretary of State, Lord Privy Seal for a while, and Master of Wards. You can see why Northampton, desperate for formal office, might be just a little miffed. Salisbury was a smallish man at five foot four and a hunchback. He was a hunchback in an age where physical beauty was even more prized than it is now, and when people did not shy away from pointing out your physical defects with maximum force. Elizabeth therefore referred to him as my pygmy, and King James VI and I of England and Scotland nicknamed him my little beagle, demonstrating the wit and royalty are not always bedfellows. Salisbury suffered all his life from these jibes. I believe we have mentioned the high art form of libels before. These are popular and often vicious poems and notes, often constructed by ordinary folk in pubs and taverns, and then pinned to the gate of the mighty, a small measure of resistance to the status quo. But often they were far from gentle. Here lieth the toad, was scrawled on Salisbury's doorframe lintel when Essex fell. Another cruelly featured him as the camel with its hump. And another declaimed him as a dissembling, smooth-faced dwarf. I know your crook-back spider-shapen. Still, Salisbury was indeed a great power in the land, and there was not much more upward you could punch if punching was your thing. Although James was thoroughly determined to retain control of foreign policy, seeing it as his prerogative as king, yet he was always off hunting the great pudding, and so everyone recognised the reality of power and of getting things done, and so they came to Salisbury. Actually, James, in his finer moments, recognised just how much he owed his workaholic servant. And when Salisbury fell ill once, James came to his bedside, a remarkable honour in itself, and I sincerely hope Bob Sess hadn't left any dirty hose lying around. Anyway, James begged him to get better, saying, For if he should once fail, there would be no more safe hunting for the King of England. Which seems just a little self-centred, to be honest. I mean, please don't die of Covid because you've not done the washing up sort of thing. But hey, from royalty, it's something, I guess. The Venetian ambassador saw the reality of Salisbury's position. No one seeks but to win his favour. It is thought that his power will last, for it is based not so much on the grace of his majesty as on an excellent prudence and ability which secures for him the universal opinion that he is worthy of his great authority and good fortune. Which is complimentary and nice. There are many similarities with his dad, Burley, then, in his talent, his relentless hard work. 
also in his love of the magnificence and outward show of success and power. So, out of all the various honours, it might be that the one Salisbury loved most was his elevation to the Order of the Garter in 1606. Not as lucrative as the earldom, not the source of power as the offices, but the honour, the kudos. Well, that was something else, and that was what made your early modern family tick. Foreign princes like the King of Denmark grumbled that folks of the provenance of the Cecils shouldn't really have had such honours. Salisbury was having none of that. He spent weeks preparing for the ceremony, and the same ambassador reported... A few days ago, the Earl of Salisbury went to Windsor for the solemn reception of the investiture of the Garter. The pomp was such that the like is not in the memory of man. Indeed, all confess that it surpassed the ceremony of the very king's coronation. So great is the power of this minister. There are other parallels between Robert and his pa, one of them, that both had trouble with their eldest sons, Burley with his lad Thomas, who didn't quite measure up, and Salisbury with his son William. But Salisbury was maybe just one notch down on the lineage and house-building thing. Burley had spent eons trying to prove his descent from a royal Welsh source, further evidence that the idea that Welsh culture was denigrated by the English is a modern myth. Salisbury wasn't so bothered about proving his lineage, Burley had his house at Tibbald's, one of the grandest in England, as well as his one at Stamford. Houses fit to entertain royalty. Salisbury, on the other hand, agreed to swap Tibbald's with the king for the much smaller Hatfield house, beautiful though it is. Though true enough, that might have been forced on him, and he spent a deal of time beautifying Hatfield to boot. Salisbury, though, seemed comfortable with his position as a bureaucrat, not troubling to convince the world of some ancient lineage. Now, despite all these good things, hard-working, powerful, valued for his enormous talents, Salisbury cannot be said to have been universally popular with the world at large. Principally, this is simply the curse of the powerful politician. It is part of the job description that you'll have to make tough decisions, which a lot of people will a dislike and b think only an idiot could have done such a thing despite having only the information from a google search at midnight on a saturday night after a boozy session at the annual bell ringers ball and c said decision is probably motivated by pure evil and if not certainly by personal gain and corruption to be honest salisbury was not on his own libels were effectively the twitter of the 17th century Religion mattered. Being considered not sufficiently Protestant, for example, was a red rag to the libel merchants. So the Earl of Northampton was lampooned as the great archpapist. Even Archbishop Whitgift was accused of being the Jesuit's hope. Salisbury came into flack for his relatively lowly origins, not for the last time, nor likely to be the last. First did thy sire, and now thyself, by Machiavellian skill, prevail and curb the peers, as well befits your will. This is part of a generally venomous libel, calling Salisbury, proud and ambitious wretch that feedest on naught but faction. You get the idea. Overall, Salisbury gets it in the neck for two other things, really. One was his social life. 
It was rumoured that he had an affair with Audrey Walsingham, but also with Lady Suffolk, his <coughs> friend, Catherine Howard. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, say no more. So, another libel appeared on his death. Oh, ladies, ladies, howl and cry, for you have lost yourselves, Barai. He that of late was your protection, he is now dead by your infection. Come with your tears, bedew his locks. Death killed him not, he was the pox. Now we have arrived back at Catherine Howard then, as night follows day. Was Salisbury really having an affair with her? Was she really going out with him? Salisbury never remarried after his wife and mother of their two children, Elizabeth Brooke, died in 1597. But given that he and Catherine's old man, the Earl of Suffolk, worked very well together, and James even ragged him about the affair publicly, it would have had to have been a sort of comfortable ménage à trois, really, were it to have involved the beast with more than one back. Catherine's daughter married William Cecil. Salisbury went out of his way to praise old man Suffolk, calling him his warmest and dearest friend. The relationship appears genuinely warm. This was not the way with the third of the trinity of knaves, by the way. Northampton, although working with Salisbury pretty effectively, hated him on a personal level, probably detesting his preeminence and success. So in letters, he described him as the little lord, or contemptuously as itself. In another remarkable moment, Northampton actually wrote James I, insinuating that Salisbury was in hell with Queen Elizabeth after he died where he kneels before his old mistress by an extreme hot fireside. Ah, politics, such a noble art. I mean, you'd really want to recall that email, wouldn't you? Anyway, back to Salisbury and the Suffolks. You have to suspect, given the general warmth of their family relationship, that Salisbury and Catherine were not lovers. More likely, that Salisbury valued her political and operational skills, which were clearly legion used her as a go-between with all her contacts and valued her knowledge of the day's political currents and therefore used her as a confidant. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. The other thing for which Salisbury was in receipt of the Crucio curse then and among historians now-ish was for corruption. Here's one of many examples of libels riffing on this very point. Oppression's praiser Taxation's razor, the country's scourger, the city's cheater of many a shilling. The king's misuser, the parliament's abuser, hath left his plotting, is now a rotting. Not a positive obit, I think you'll agree. And some historians have agreed, and there is no doubt Salisbury made a lot of money. A bit like his dad, of course. Things were, of course, different back then. There really was no tradition at all of the career bureaucrat or politician who must keep his nose clean and resist conflicts of interest. Salisbury was a big investor in land around St Martin's in London, for example, a major landowner in the Strand, and he used his influence to open a grand shopping centre called the New Exchange on the Strand, called Britain's Bourse, to please the boss all part of a plan to tease business away from the city of London to where the Cecils had their land so its value would go on. When he died, he amassed a fortune of 49,000 quid, a massive sum, and although there were significant debts on that, they were soon cleared and his heir lived a high old life. Meanwhile, 
During his life, he spent vast amounts on the splendid gardens that surrounded all his houses and on sophisticated, elaborate interiors. He built up a major collection of paintings, was a notable musical patron, added extensively to his father's library and commissioned Ben Jonson for the masks staged at his house for the royal family. So in short, he'd done all right for himself, the lad. To set against that, Salisbury will take the action that was required to run the ship of state effectively, which we'll start talking about a little bit more next time, and he'll do that even if it gets in the way of his money-making. So he offered a reforming deal with regards to wardship that would have significantly reduced his income from his post as master of the wards. Most notoriously, though, he accepted a pension from the Spanish ambassador, which really would be a no-no these days, obviously. And yet, there's no sign he amended policy accordingly. He stitched the Spanish up like the proverbial kipper at the peace negotiations, and the Spanish secretly viewed the pension as at best, making Salisbury slightly less antagonistic than he already was. And then, the expectation of the time was that you'd make a bit of cash from having a job. Salary wasn't really the thing at the time, it was all the other stuff that came with it. So, let's have a look at the Earl of Northampton, just as an example, shall we? Northampton had a monopoly in starch, making such outrageous profits that complaints in the 1610 Parliament led to its revocation. But never mind, James gave him an annual pension of 3,000 quid and a lump sum of 6,000. Plus, he was granted some lucrative wardships and he also had a Spanish pension of 1,000 quid a year, plus the odd precious gift. So from having been a rather impecunious minor scion of the mighty Howard clan, he died with 80,000 quid in his pockets. Actually, what the libels show more clearly was not that Salisbury was an overmighty oppressor. What they really reveal is a public that had no real understanding of the parlous state of royal finances and the absolute necessity of repairing them, which Salisbury worked tirelessly to achieve with some success. Despite having one of the lowest tax bills of any European country, the English libellers saw none of that. They just saw corruption and noses in troughs. There is nothing new under the sun. And anyway, there was, without doubt, a kernel of truth. Positions of power did indeed make you rich at a time of crashing inequality. And the way the king spent public money and taxation was anything but responsible. And so it is to public finances that we shall turn next time, though after discussing the relationship between a man and his currents. I have a week off next week, everyone. And the week after that, I will have a guest with me, Mike Caradi of A History of Italy podcast. This will be available on free and members' feeds, and Mike is going to help me introduce the new shiny and indeed spankingly new extended biography of that 14th century mercenary villain rags to riches, John Hawkwood, 14th century Essex man. Until then, gentle listeners, girls and boys, have a really lovely time, full of fun and full of laughter. <laughs>